This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carter. Hi, welcome everybody. Once again, Nate Carden here with David Farhat. This is Guilty Conscience. Aman Kyler and Stefan Victor are off today, but we're joined by Sam Gordon, an international tax partner at Deloitte in Japan. And we're going to have an interesting conversation about Japan's perspective on Pillar 2, Pillar 1, international tax generally, and a number of other topics that relate to economic and international development. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. Look forward to speaking with everybody. Maybe the easiest way to start is with the topic everyone's thinking about, which is Pillar 2. Yep. Where do things stand? How is it going in that part of the world? Um, well, for start with Japan, and maybe then we can talk a little bit about the broader region. But Japan is fully on board with Pillar 2 and the this prior year's tax reform, so tax reforms that became effective from April 1st of 2023, included basically IIR, right? The Income Inclusion Rule. Those will become effective for the year starting April 2024. As you know, Japan has this, this the, the fiscal year, the traditional fiscal year starting is, is a bit different from other, other parts of the world. With respect to the other aspects or components of Pillar 2, um, we expect Japan to be on board as those kind of become a little bit clearer, I would say. As Japan has been a big proponent of BEPS overall, going back to kind of BEPS 1.0. So what's the view of Pillar 2 in Japan with this kind of 15% minimum tax? And my limited experience with Japan, I haven't seen kind of Japanese taxpayers look to maximize their ETA as some other taxpayers might. What's their view on that? Is this something like they're, they see as this is just normal, this is what should be done? I would put this, I mean, it's, and I'll start off, maybe we put this sort of in an ESG kind of bucket for Japan in the sense that you know, Japan itself is a relatively high tax rate, standard tax, uh, statutory tax rate itself. You're correct in terms of the tax function and the management of taxes for, for large multinationals does not center around reduction in ETR as much as it centers around compliance, certainty, business continuity, those kinds of things, right? The entirety of BEPS, I think, though, has been perceived through two lenses in Japan. One is through the NTA's lens, which you do still have, obviously, the use of, of um, some low-tax jurisdictions. And, you know, there's a lot of interest deduction issues that arise. So you see anti-avoidance, other types of anti-avoidance type of things in the Japan tax policy. So this becomes a tool that the NTA, vis-a-vis the Ministry of Finance, views uh, as part of its toolbox. The other side of it is the Ministry of the Economy, Trade, and Industry, right? That side, which is more a proponent of Japanese multinationals going out into the world, they're really trying to work with this around, okay, the direction of travel is that Japanese multinationals need to do a, a better job of centrally managing their taxes, have better awareness and better governance and control over tax globally, and so they're driving this from that perspective, i.e. multinationals and groups need to be able to deal with it vis-a-vis all the other jurisdictions they're in. So, so I think there's sort of this two-stage approach to it. 
and and both of them, to my view, kind of round out round out to being a responsible taxpayer and what that means and how then do you manage that? Gotcha. Another question before we kind of look at the rest of Asia and Pillar Two. Do you anticipate or have you heard any rumblings about any kind of variation or moving away from what the OECD has put out with Pillar 2? Or do you think Japan will be right down the middle with those rules? Yeah, I mean, in in all of the Pillar 1 stuff that came into the domestic rules, right down the line, right? So, and we anticipate Japan is going to be the same, do the same with respect to both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, right? The interesting thing, though, Japan is one of those countries where there is, there are CFC rules, pretty complex CFC rules, right? And so the one thing that they're trying to figure out is that interaction. And and so I think the Pillar 1 rules will come in pretty standard, but the implications of them for the CFC rules and how CFC rules are going to be probably modified over time is probably something to watch out for. Generally speaking, you can think of Japan as being in Asia, while we have the inclusive framework, right? You can think of Japan as being one of the longest running, most invested OECD members, right? And there aren't that many OECD members to begin with in, in, in the APAC region. So I think Japan in that respect is really looking to sort of be a, an example. And politically, right, there's, not, there's no sort of um, real political risk, I would say, associated with with just carrying a straight line on this and and dealing with it on a standard basis. So no real sovereignty worries about the OECD providing additional guidance and kind of acting as an extraterritorial rulemaking body, some of the stuff that we hear in the United States? Not to the same degree. I mean, clearly there are constituencies that have that concern, but I don't see the NTA, as you may know, is probably one or the the Japanese tax authority is probably one of the most competent authority groups in the world. Most connected, most interactive. So on exchange of information, on on dealing with double taxation. So I think they're already bought into to mechanisms that that have to be in place to kind of deal with these issues. So that, that part to me is is not as not as evident here probably as it is in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is always for my I'm an American who's lived in Japan a long time. But my observation is the U.S. is always close to the OECD. Right. But very, very concerned about maintaining that, as you say, that sovereign, that sovereign perspective. We don't have that as much in Japan. The interpretation of it and how then it gets looked at from an examiner point of view may be, you know, there may be some interpretive differences but I don't think that you're going to see any differences with respect to the rulemaking, per se. As people listening to this think about some of those interpretive differences that might emerge, is there is there anything we can learn, for example, from how NTA applies BEPS 1.0 and DEMPI principles, et cetera, that might give a sense of direction of travel? It'll be pretty much down the middle of the fairway. There will be a more aggressive application of the Pillar 2 rules with anti-abuse principles, things like that. Or do you think it's hard to predict at this point? If I start by what are, what are our clients and, and folks we talk to most concerned with, they're most concerned with how to do this operationally, how to reconcile, how to demonstrate. And if you've ever dealt with the NTA and the TRTB, you'll have an appreciation for that because the way, I mean, the difference between the NTA, the NTA is the policy setting arm. The regional tax bureaus, Tokyo Regional Tax Bureau being the largest of them, is the audit arm and is the field arm, if you will. That field arm has very wide discretion as to 
the level of depth that they can go to in terms of how they the data and information that they can they can request and that they can seek to validate as part of any audit issue that they address that's expected right that that won't stop that's just a part of of how that's baked into the system so I, I think the biggest thing Nate, that that folks are are thinking about when they think about the interaction between pillar two CBCR CFC what are currently thought to be kind of three different data sets, what is that going to be vis-a-vis the NTA? So I don't know that there necessarily is going to be just this pillar one particular thing that comes through. But, you know, when you get that convergence of the three, you know, there's going to, we, we anticipate there's going to be a lot of sort of work in that space, one on the, on the preparation side, but then as you say, on the interpretive side in terms of how you get validation, how you get confirmation through through examinations and, and through those types of things. So pivoting from Japan a little bit and going to the rest of Asia, understanding Asia PAC isn't a monolith and there are different interests there. What's the view kind of across Asia on some of this with regards to implementing and folks looking at themselves as winners or losers from from the pillars? I'm actually sitting in Hong Kong as we as we take this and visiting and, and, and doing some visiting with clients here. And you're absolutely right. The, it's not a monolith and who's the winners and losers is a good way to look at it. The first in the first instance, I would say, you know, if you go back 20 years, Japan was thought to be a hyper aggressive jurisdiction. Part of it is what I just mentioned, that level of detail, that just rabbit hole kind of thing with respect to information. Part of it was they had very they had some unique stances, right, that were thought to be out of the norm with probably some of the other OECD nations. Fast forward to now, everybody views India as a very challenging jurisdiction. Korea has always been a particularly challenging jurisdiction. Australia has become sort of, you know, thinks of itself as the lead in, in terms of trying to create certain, I think, taxpayer behavior. I don't know how successful they are in that, but that's their view. So if you first start with those, right, all of those are, are pretty much on board. I think India is a little bit farther behind in terms of where, you know, the actual rulemaking with it. But if you look at Australia and Korea, already a lot some clarity as to where they're going. I think Korea is, was in the last reforms, but they're going to revisit it in part due to additional OECD developments, basically. Australia is equally moving along very quickly towards 2025. So that's that one bucket, right? The interesting thing about that, then if you switch to the city states, as I like to call them, Hong Kong and Singapore, which, you know, you can imagine their economic models are very different from large production states. You know, they either have a manufacturing base themselves, a large multinational base, or are production centers as part of larger supply chains, right? Their need to draw investment, their relatively their preference for relatively low tax or source rules that effectively result in low ETRs, those kinds of things are are, are very much at issue. I think with this change, right? That is to say, I think that they're both on board politically. They know that this is the direction of travel, but on the unwinding or, or the 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 bringing together of Pillar One with their effectively public policy point of view and what they see as core to their economic kind of model, right, is taking a bit more time. I think you know about the source rule changes that came through in Hong Kong. We know that the on the Singapore side, there's a lot of discussion 
within the government as to what how what types of incentives you know Singapore is known for 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 various types of incentives what types of incentives will be will work in the new world right for them so those things i think are in play when we look at i think china is is probably the one that is i don't have a lot of visibility yet into exactly where china's going i you know they you would think that they're a lot on board i mean they they seem to probably benefit but china's issue i think is that they have from an administrative standpoint, right, the the administration of tax there is fairly fragmented, right, and so the central tax agency there has has a little is a little bit more challenged in terms of how it manages the variety of, of locations. So I can see where that constituency point, even within the tax administration in China, is going to be an important aspect to it um, going forward. That's sort of the landscape point, right? My focus in terms of what I see is probably more on those city states and then to a less to a certain degree on supply chains where this is coming into play. And I do think, you know, when we're looking at folks that are doing assessments, so whether that be some Japanese multinationals, uh, U.S. or our, our European headquartered, when they think of APAC, right? The two jurisdictions that they're most concerned with in terms of the how the income inclusion rule, the immediate impact would be, is are Hong Kong and Singapore. Those two jump off immediately, right? So I think that the focus from a, a local rulemaking perspective, as opposed to what's being forced onto these jurisdictions by the headquarter jurisdiction as, as a result of how this is a, you know, rolling out there, is going to create some momentum in the next six to eight months around, you know, what has to be done, even if rules are not in the place here on the ground. That's that's just the world we live in. One of the things around this we've been talking about with folks from Europe, and we were fortunate enough to get from some folks from Africa and even folks here in the U.S., is there's a concern that there's going to be a lot of turmoil, right? You have a ton of confusion. You have this sitting on top of transfer pricing where we've already had enough problems. How is that kind of that picture in Japan and, and the rest of Asia? Is there the same worry that there's going to be a lot of confusion, a lot of turmoil with, with these rules? I think so. You know, when we look at some of the, you know, when there, the, when there were, when the commentary has been made on, at various stages to drafts and, and documents that the OECD has looked for input, if you look at some of the major Asian industry association input, that's been one of the biggest concerns, right? You know, you have this, I mean, the, the Japan example I mentioned with, with CBCR, CFC, and this, right? And we, we didn't even mention, you know, transfer pricing, uh, transfer pricing. We didn't, we didn't mention APAs, right? We didn't get into any of that. So there's just, you know, the, the, the concern is that it's, it's going to be very, very difficult for anyone to know what, what's the true answer on, on these things, right? Because you have so many things at, at issue, Luckily, I think I think Japan, as I mentioned, is probably the one jurisdiction that has the most competent authority experience in the region, right? Some India and I believe even China are starting to ramp up in terms of case volume, but Japan's experience with particularly with the U.S. and European counterparties goes back to the late 80s. And the variety of cases as well, right? The different kinds of cases in Japan, yeah. That's right, the variety, that's the other thing. It's a variety of cases, and it's also it's also one of the dynamics you always have to appreciate with APAC. I don't know if it was the same with Africa, though, is if you have both inbound and outbound multinationals in a jurisdiction, you tend to get a better balance, right, in terms of if you're skewed towards one or the other, 
from a policy and also from just the way the mechanics of things work, right? And the politics, right? You can see where those things kind of drive you in a bit of a different direction. So, so I, I do envisage that being a problem. I hope that some of the OECD's more prescriptive, what it considers to be constructive and prescriptive approaches to how these things would be dealt with in a map context are helpful, right? We'll have to wait and see, right, is kind of the answer on that. But I do think that that is going to be, that is a concern of taxpayers. I think tax administrators at this point, they're, they're kind of in the First, let us get some rules on the books and see how this goes, right? I mean, if we think about CBCR, to your to the earlier point about taking us back to BAPS 1.0, there was a huge concern about tax authorities coming in. We're going to come in and use it immediately to start making adjustments. We don't see that at all. We, don't, we, we barely see it come up in, in tax examinations. We don't get a view that they're really even using it. So there's this perception of all these rules immediately creating sort of these explosions when, in fact, tax administrations are not well set up and not resourced well enough to sort of, you know, keep track of all the things they normally need to do, let alone take on these other areas. So hopefully that gives us a window of time to kind of settle into it before before the controversy becomes just 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 overbearing. Clearly, I'd turn the table on you guys a bit. One con- big concern is the U.S., Right. What is the U.S. going to do? That's probably the big, biggest concern. I know. I mean, when we look at Japan, we look at a lot of Asian countries. Right. The U.S. is is in the top three or four in terms of trade partners. Right. And so when you have that and you're not clear about what's going to happen there, that dynamic in particular, that channel or corridor in particular is one that I think people are going to be really keen to understand how how, how it's going to work. What are they worried might happen? Because my general sense of things is that you have some U.S. multinationals and, you know, U.S. subsidiaries of foreign multinationals that might be worried about their globe ETR, but it tends to be around the edges, et cetera. So what are their big concerns? Well, I, I just think it comes more at this point from a rule adoption perspective, right? The timing within the rules. It's more, it's it's kind of in the, I think most of it right now is on the, well, how, What's occurring and what on the horizon in terms of transitions, right? And are we moving everything at the same time? Clearly, to the degree, I mean, I think it's probably more um, to the degree, you know, if you think about a Japanese multinational, I I don't think they're going to have as much of an issue because they're top, you know, if they have a top up, it's going to be in Japan, right? I think that it's, it's a question probably of for U.S. inbounds, right? Because let's take what you have to, as a U.S. inbound, the requirement for IIR is going to be disclose the the constituencies of the group, the ETRs by country, and those kinds of things. So, you know, once you get further down in the rule set, right, once those start to come into play, if you don't have corresponding sort of IIR in the U.S. and you've got um, something that pops up from, you know, with respect to the U.S. ETR in a, in a given country, how are they going to deal with that? I think that's kind of the, the, the thing. And, and, and again, because the U.S. is such an important trade partner, right, for, for many of these multinationals or because they, you know, the U.S. presence might be very significant, multinational presence might be significant in an Asian market, that's where the concern comes from probably. So it's, it's much more probably just a, how are the rule sets going to converge over time, right? And, and in what time frame is that really going to occur? Is it is, are you going to have a few years out where you have this, this, this gap, effectively, that you're just going to have to deal with? 
Does anyone worry on the Japanese multinational side about U.S. multinationals potentially having at least a short-term competitive advantage during this transition? Because I could see that. I'm not sure that it's actually going to shake out that way, but I could see, hey, we're subject to all these rules and the U.S. is, is no longer on an even footing. Yeah, I mean, I think there may be a bit of that, but going back to Dave, to the initial point we made with David, if you take Japanese multinationals, right, there's two things that they're, they're going to have, the resource output, the increased resource and complexity of what they have to deal with, which is probably not as much of a competitive issue as it is much as a, a slight cost issue. If you think of it from a effective tax rate perspective and from a capital market, so, you know, the flow through to the capital markets here, Japan is just getting to a point where there, there were some recent reforms via the Tokyo Stock Exchange where you know, there's a push to increase the return on equity, right, in terms of the, the where you're listed in the uh, on the exchange, right? So you're starting to see a bit of a, a change in management view around the importance of return on equity, right? As that happens, I think you'll start to see the, the idea of ETR and the competitiveness around how you're positioned after tax come into play. It's so interesting, right, that, that Pillar 2 creates additional compliance burdens, creates additional costs, creates an additional drive to squeeze more out of your tax function, which was allegedly not the point. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Oops. <laughs> yeah. These unseen adverse effects, right, of, of these types of, I mean, it's, it's awfully hard to, to, I mean, this to me has that kind of drop of uh, pebble in the water and the ripples, right? <laughs> and it's a giant wave somewhere in the world as a result of it, right? <laughs> so, one quick question before we kind of talk about some of some of the uh, ripples, especially from a controversy sense. When we're talking about Pillar 2 or BEPS 2.0 overall, there seems to be a frustration, especially from current o OECD uh, countries with how transfer pricing works, them not getting their fair share of tax revenue, things that BEPS 1.0 was supposed to solve. Whether it solved it or not, I think, I don't know if they gave it enough time to work, <laughs> but it was, it was very quickly from pivoted to 2.0. Do you see that same kind of frustration in Asia? Does that exist there as well, or is this something more kind of unique to uh, Europe? I think you see the same the same frustration. It's like, well, you know, I mean, because if you think about when the, the rule set was just coming on and the politics of, of BEPS 2.0 started and people were like, okay, we've, we've yet to really get everything under the hood running well with BEPS 1.0. And I think you're, you know, nature mentioned of the Dempy point. It's like, well... We were told that this was about intangibles, right, and, and interest income. Now we're being told it's about distribution in the front end, right? So in market footprint, it's like, which, which one is it, right? And so I think that dynamic, the idea that the first BEPS point, BEPS was, first wave of BEPS was really oriented towards what was very clear types of income versus this is oriented just, just basically towards effectively business models, Right. That that are not that that in the, in the first instance, were never tax driven. Right. It's particularly digital models. I mean, this was always just a function of of how these firms thought it was m most effective to, to set up and scale up for for multiple locations. Right. So so I do think that there's there's that that frustration. I, I think, David, you know, to our breaking out of the countries into two buckets, that frustration is probably highest in Hong Kong and Singapore. Because they are the ones that stand in a way to stand to lose because you, you can see where relatively low populations overall compared to all of the other places, 
typically high talent, high transaction, less physical good movement, except for the Hong Kong ports, right? And the gas and oil that goes through Singapore. So you've got this thing where you've got basically these service, massive service, regional service hubs, right? That are now being put under pressure as a result of another take, another take on business models. And so I think that that part is is definitely frustrating to folks. Going back to the ESG point that you made right at the beginning, which which to me is fascinating, is the policy debate there more of a sort of what I would call traditional tax policy debate? What's efficient? What's not? What's the right way to tax this? Or is it more of a an ESG public perception? People just think transfer pricing, international tax, pick your level is not working and we need to do something. So this is what we're going to do. Yeah. In Japan, I would say that it is probably it, it starts with and this is cultural and to a certain degree, it starts, I think, with the idea of what does it mean to be a good corporate citizen? Right. What does it mean to be as a particularly if we think about an, an outbound multinational from a Japanese perspective? Right. What does it mean to, to be that? Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily are going to pay more tax than you need to, but you're not going to necessarily be against paying the appropriate level of tax. The engagement, to your point on the debate, right, the way the engagement occurs, you think about how civil society and how, how multinationals and, and law, law firms and professional service firms influence the policy making process in, 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 other, in other places. In Japan, there are very specific, what they call study groups, right, led by the ruling parties that work basically throughout the year to establish the each year's tax reform agenda. And Ministry of Finance, as I mentioned earlier, their role is, is much more in a way to figure out the rule set that works best for stimulating economic activity and collecting the right amount of taxes. METI, on the other hand, is more concerned in, in inputting as to how do we make sure that large, large, particularly large Japanese multinationals in, 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 in the international tax space are well prepared and well situated to deal with rules as they evolve and as they're coming to being, right? And are the rules, practically speaking, something that they can deal with, right? So you have these kind of groups at the table, and, and largely when you think about how multinationals participate, they participate not, not as much, they, they do do a bit on their own as individual corporates, but they pre- predominantly participate through industry associations, right? Through Kadonrin, for example. That's the one, one of the largest one that, that everyone has heard of, right? To a certain degree, certain things kind of just get baked in, right? The OECD stuff just gets baked in. Japan's an OECD nation. We're going to adopt it. It's much more about how and when and, and that kind of a thing. Pivoting a bit to talk about, you know, when the rubber meets the road controversy. You mentioned APA, you mentioned MAP and some of that. How do you envision that happening kind of across, across Asia? I think the first thing that has to occur is, again, from on the ground in Japan, because when we, when we look at Japan, right, it's, it's, it's top 10, of its top 10 trade partners, only two of them are outside the region, right? Germany and the U.S. All the rest are in APAC. And the history of Japan map relationships with APAC countries 
is not as I would say as advanced and as, as strong as it is for the with the U.S. and the U.K. We know for a fact right now there was a lot of push on de- on developing those relationships, improving those relationships. Part of it is is the fact that you just haven't seen as much. I mean, if you take the China map processes, right? You just don't see as many. You don't see as mu- you don't see as much. If you take India, they're they're very limited in terms of focus, in terms of which the types of things you see, right? So there is an appreciation that that there has to be a, a, a rule set that first makes them have to come to the table on these issues. Otherwise, you know, there's there's a fear that they'll kick the can down the road, right? Too complex, not resourced well enough, that kind of thing. Don't really care, not, you know, maybe less concerned about the average time to close cases, maybe, you know, from a KPI standpoint, right? So the, the idea of, of, of a mechanism that really makes it easier for folks to come to the table. Also, anything that, that, that effectively forces them to come to the table, right? And so those are the things that we, we really think have to be there in order for it to, to start to work. We do know that as part of APA discussions, we, would, we anticipate some of these things to come up and be discussed in that context. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be addressed as part of APA uh, transactions, in scope transactions. But well, like, like on other issues, like on PE issues and, and, and things like that, we always know that the, as part of APA discussions, that prov- it just provides a forum and there's a level of trust that, that, that's there that's different from your typical map case, just straight map case, right, that allows for certain, certain advancements on that. So, so I, would, I think it's two, two or three things. One is rule sets that really force folks to come to the table. Don't give them the option to sort of kick the can down the road. The other is the building of relationships in some of these corridors where the relationships weren't as strong as they previously have been. And I know those are occurring. I've seen some of my colleagues try to help facilitate some of that. And then the last thing I think is with respect to existing APAs, right, using that APA forum as a dialogue, because you you're going to have APAs that are rolling on you know, over, over five, six-year periods, using those, those things as discussions to start the dialogues on these things so that you have an uh, a practical place so to come to to understand each other on it. So hopefully that's what occurs. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I know that's what I, what I will be advocating in terms of the clients that I work with, in terms of the APA and the MAP portfolio that, that, that I'm involved with. I'm unique in that I have probably have more, I probably have more, I, I'm increasingly having more Japan-Singapore stuff compared to, you know, in years prior where, where it was a lot of Japan-U.S. stuff. So, so I think that's a good sort of focus point for me to kind of see how, how this evolves over time. Do you have any sense at all as to, with the particular rule set that is Pillar 2, how's the training and knowledge base going on in, in amongst the Japanese tax authorities? Because one of the things that I certainly observe in the United States is you have a, a small sliver of people who are very into the weeds on Pillar 2 and think about it a lot. And then a vast number of private sector government, every every kind of practitioner uh, who, who hasn't even started thinking about it yet. And that that worries me from an enforcement and controversy perspective. What's it like there? I think that that's what we're waiting on in a way, because typically, you know, when you have the reforms come out, you then will see enforcement orders, right, and operational guidelines that come 
that really set, that kind of give you a sense, okay, this is what you expect from, uh, when I'm, as I mentioned, the regional tax bureau arm, right, and how they're going to be approaching this and how, how in, in practice it's going to be, be dealt with, right? We haven't seen much of that yet, and I think that's important. The, generally speaking, though, I think that the the there's two there's two things. The the first thing I mentioned with respect to how poli- the, how policy gets made and how those constituencies come together as part of that process, the NTA and the regional tax bureau have representation there, and so I, I'm pretty sure that from a broad rule standpoint, they they have a clear understanding of it. Right. That that part is not an issue. How. But the question, though, let's take an example of a question that came up for me. Right. Well, I've got one client who's got they historically you did their CBCR bottom up. And the reason they did is because they made an acquisition at one point in time and they never really it continued to run along with that acquisition under its accounting system. And never, you know, re- never really replaced and brought on, brought everything into the same SAP consolidation groups system, right? I don't think that, and, and again, you know, the the, NT, the the regional tax bureaus are very, very detail-oriented. And so they're going to come with questions without having any context for the system, you know, the consolidation system understanding and what's involved in that and how that works and why it, why it, why certain things maybe aren't possible. So, so I think that level, that level is something until they really get out in the field and the, the, the interaction between taxpayers, you know, when they're determining that those enforcement orders and those op- that operational guidance, there is, there is a, a commentary period. There is an opportunity to provide commentary, but there's not as, there's not as much interaction between taxpayers and the regional tax bureaus such that they would really have a deep understanding of that context until they get in an audit world. I mean, there's a bit of an, inf- you know, there's an information advantage there that that both sides want to kind of maintain. And so I don't think, I think that's going to be the, 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 the practical sort of, well, why can't you get, why can't we get all these consolidated numbers? Why are we, why do we have this piecemeal thing? What's going on with this? Those kinds of things are going to be at issue for Japan. I mean, you may know, I mean, Japan is, is, I mean, many Japanese multinationals will make very significant acquisitions of foreign groups, right? Maybe smaller groups or, or equally sized groups. But there's, there's historically, there has been a, a practice, pretty common, not in all cases, pretty common to let that business run on its own course. Level of integration that's fairly senior. Systems may not integrate, Right. And so my earlier point about, you know, what do we need to what needs to occur in terms of the centralization of some of this management and understanding? This is, again, one of those one of those inflection points where that issue is going to is going to present itself pretty starkly to, to to many to many taxpayers and to the to the regional tax bureaus. So that's where I think they're going to have to learn on the on the fly, if you will, as 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 they get out in the field. And, and that's not going to be for if we look at the. The time frame for when these returns are coming in, we're thinking the first fiscal year is starts from April 2024, right? And that is going to then be closed in March 2025, right? And then you've got X number of months after that, or, you know, you've got quite a long time period run before anybody gets any real 
visibility into what this looks like, right? That's where, and in that period, I, I don't know how they're going to, how they try to get a good understanding. Are they going to survey? You know, they've done surveys around corporate tax governance. They've started to do that with some of the larger multinational, you know, outbound multinationals. Maybe they'll take that approach to try to get an understanding. But, but again, you know, there's an information advantage that probably taxpayers want to want to maintain in terms of how they approach responding to those kinds of things, I, I would imagine. So one last thing before we, we, we get to wrap up here. Given everything you've talked about, what would be your advice for multinationals kind of dealing with Asia PAC, either U.S. inbound folks or, you know, Asian multinationals? What should they be doing right now? I think most folks are in that sort of understand, assess phase. And they're getting a good, they have some sense, okay, these seem to be the jurisdictions that matter the most, right? The, the criticality of going from that to understanding how and if you're going to be able to apply safe harbors, right? And then going to what are you thinking about as a business as usual process? And then what, if anything, are planning, you know, things that can help remediate the issues you might have for the two to three jurisdictions in APAC that, that you know are, are probably on a, on a regular basis or, or a particular set of facts that are going to drive you to below 15% in a particular jurisdiction. I think that's where I, I think I would suggest people focus, right? The other thing is, you know, you see these projects occurring at a, at a, at a headquarter level, which makes a lot of sense. I do think now there's a need to sort of start to go down a little bit further and understand what can be done, even if it's on a regional basis, right? I mean, figuring it out a little bit, bring, bringing that down a level, because my, my observation is that the interaction between global headquarters and their, their desire to kind of make sure they keep this ring fence and don't let the monkey out of the bag yet is creating a lot of anxiety in regional headquarters in APAC. What are we doing about it? How are we approaching this? I haven't heard about it. This is like X number of months off. I'm getting questions from, from my, you know, stakeholders. So, so those kinds of things I think are important. And then the other thing is I think for those that have APAs, as I mentioned, right, start to weave in questions. I mean, you have a unique, you have unique relationships with the with some of these tax authorities that folks that don't have APAs do not, right? You do have a, a measure of trust it's to be gauged, but Start to start to see if that's a forum in which you can start to understand this or begin to think about it in a cross-border way with a lens towards very particular locations and, and, and that kind of thing. Th- those are the things that I, I would recommend. You know, it's interesting because unlike David's favorite program, ICAP, right, one of the big advantages of APA is that it gives you the opportunity to have this continuous engagement, right? So it's almost telling telling folks out there, look, yeah, APAs take a long time, but in this world, that might be a feature, not a bug, because it's a, allowing you to continue that engagement. Yeah, I mean, that, hor- that time horizons we're talking about are, are, are in line with with the types of periods we, we typically see, right? So I think, you know, I don't think, I'm not suggesting that you're going to find out everything you need in that context, but I do think... That's a forum that needs to start now to be thought of in a slightly different way than it has been in the past, right, um, is, is the way I would put it. No, I hope governments enhance that function going forward because with all of the confusion, to your point, that convert, that direct conversation between tax authority and taxpayer is a really, really good one. 
But that being said, we it looks like we're out of time. Sam, it was absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for doing this. Happy Founders Day, bro. It was good to have you on the 17th. I appreciate it, man. You, you as well. You as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Again, this has been Guilty Conscience. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 